from the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas. This is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. In December of 2018, Barbara Miles made a huge impact in Texas with workshops and wisdom for practitioners and for our Teacher of Students Who Are Deafblind pilot program. In this special episode, we're playing segments from a conversation she had with TSBVI educators Chris Montgomery and Matt Schultz. Her insight on stories and communications struck a deep chord in me. After listening to her speak and share just for one day, I was fundamentally changed as a teacher and a mom. One of my goals in coming here was to empower people here to keep gathering stories. And so um, just to have that confidence that we all have stories and that every teacher has stories. Um, Yeah, I'll tell that story about a time when... um, when I was asked to consult about a young woman who was blind and she actually had some hearing, but um, they were worried at the school that her hearing was declining because she had stopped speaking. And so when I went to the school, I asked to observe her all day and I did. and. It was true, she barely said a word the whole entire day. And um, I wouldn't say she was particularly oppositional, she just was mute and, um, and she was blind. And at the end of the day we had a meeting and the staff were sitting around a big table and there was a young woman I hadn't met there. and. Um, I just asked to go around the table and hear from everybody what their observation of the student had been. And they all went around and they all said, she's mute, she's mute, she isn't speaking, she isn't speaking. And and then I got to the last person whom I hadn't met and it was a young woman that was about the age of the student, the girl. And I said, so are you what is your experience? Is she, is, does she talk with you? And she said, yeah, she talks all the time. And I said, oh, what, what does she talk about? And, and she said, oh, she talks about makeup, and she talks about boys, and she talks about music, and she talks about clothes. And I said, oh, and what do you talk to her about? Oh, I tell her about my boyfriend, and I tell her about the music I'm listening to, and I tell her about all kinds of things that are going on in my life. And I could just see all the other people like, oh, okay. (laughs) And um, I thought, oh, she's not losing her hearing. She just hasn't found Mutual topics, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> or, or I should say the joint topic, joint attention. Like, so that's re- that experience really informed me because I thought, well, if you're talking about things that the kid is yeah. not interested in at all, then 
you can talk all you want. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why we have more than one friendship, you know, in our right. lives, because they address different um, yes. aspects of ourselves. Yeah. So behavior is a form of communication. I mean, that's how I've always looked at it. So mm -hmm. if a child is uh, acting out, they're communicating something. And, um, and there are skillful and unskillful ways of having a conversation in that situation. Mm -hmm. And one only learns those by trying and by having that core value of uh, respect and equality in some way. I mean, like you and I are both human, but I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> As a teacher, you know, you have responsibilities, mm -hmm. and you have to take you, care of them. Yeah. yeah. You don't just sit there all day and, you don't and just uh, sit there all do day. whatever they want to do or, or just Absolutely. look at them. No, no. Not, okay. not at all. <laughs> not at all. Because, I mean, that's why Chris Castor was so wise in saying, you know, have these conversations that are on her topics, like, just for a while mm -hmm. before lunch. So... Oh, guess what? It's lunchtime. <laughs> we gotta go to lunch or before some activity so that you've given yourself permission really mm -hmm. to have a natural end to the conversation. In a way, um, teachers are taught to look forward all the time. I think I was as a teacher. You have a plan, you have like goals, you have this sort of forward-looking thing. And um, that's fine, but we also have to look backwards and remember things, like have memory for what has happened. And I believe that the children and adults, that everyone has memories, sometimes they don't have words attached. But, um, and that that kind of a, a view is is a way of thinking about um, many things in deaf-blind education, like, I, I can say this because I'm so old, but I have all these memories of sort of little milestones, and children have memories of, that are in their bodies. Yeah. So the way we touch and the way we interact with them um, is so important. And memory is important, which is why I think there are such things as memory books <laughs> in the field of deafblindness, so there are concrete things yeah. to make the memories. And I also, one of the first signs that I like to teach, teach, no, <laughs> that I like to expose a child to a lot is remember. Remember uh. you and me yesterday? We did this, you know, like, so to come in every day with how was yesterday and then how, how might tomorrow be, you know, if given that. So before the calendar is the memory, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. like. Um, can, I was going to ask, can you, can you talk briefly about what the Circle of Courage is and how you came to discover it and why you think it's helpful for uh, when thinking about uh, 
how to support the learning or the development of deafblind kids? Yeah, like I um, <clears throat> said in the training, um, and I, uh, I was originally introduced to it in Vermont by um, Larry Brentro, who came to do a workshop in Vermont about it. And um, I mean, you happen to be interested in it yeah. too, and probably yeah. you. <laughs> so um, that made me so happy, and I was just so struck by the the um, um, his whole presentation, but by the wheel of the circle of courage and how the elements of that make up a, a good life and um, and what you know and I'm I'm forgetting what his terms are, but I made an adaptation for um, that blindness. Um, he has four, and so help me with that. I think uh, mastery is one, right? Mastery. Uh, there's, or this, I think he they refer to it as the spirit of mastery. Okay. The spirit of generosity. Right. Uh, the spirit of independence, okay. and uh, belonging. And b belonging. Belonging. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the belonging. spirit of belonging. Those yeah. Are the four. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, both of your stories speak to all those things, and most maybe especially belonging, which might be the safety, Yeah. similar to the safety. If we're not alone, then <laughs> yeah. but maybe goes up, you know, goes with it. Um, and the one I added was understanding, meaning um, some sense of how the world around me works. <laughs> um, which can't be taken for granted by somebody who has impaired vision and hearing because yeah. we develop our concepts, we who can see and hear less and less all the time, I might add. <laughs> um, <laughs> we who can see and hear um, can, can learn about how the world works just by watching and listening, and kids do. <laughs> So we need to be mindful of how, of you know how they, what they see and hear, and that, and that I mean I guess that piece I'm just coming to this right now that piece is really pretty important. We need to be mindful of what they see and hear, and then with a child who's deaf blind, sometimes the only avenue, if they're totally deaf blind, is touch. A child who doesn't have vision or hearing, or who has very little of it, hasn't had the opportunity to see that other people have conversations, or overhear the conversations, or um, maybe hasn't had partners that um, evoke uh, just this sense of what it's like to have a back and forth interaction. although. I mean, you have to think about it. Um, just about every child has had some experience of uh, comfort with another person. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're looking for, kind of a trust and a comfort. A connection. Yeah, a connection. And um, if they haven't, there's the potential there. That's my belief and faith.
ultimately. And you know what now I'm remembering is um, Selma Freiburg and reading her in the early days uh, before there were like video cameras or anything. She, you know, she was a psychiatrist who worked with blind children. Yeah. And um, she took film of these blind children and she noticed that a lot of the mothers of blind children were um, depressed. Disconnecting. Because there wasn't that exchange of smiles. And so she um, took film and she looked at the film and she realized, she had the hypothesis, which turned out to be really true, that the, the blind babies were actually smiling with their hands. Mm and they were like, when they were happy, they were doing something like this. Mm -hmm. And so she taught the mothers to pay attention to the hands of the children um, and know that, that they were smiling. And, um, and it evoked smiles in the mothers and was very helpful for them, so. You told the story yesterday about uh, touch as a tool and how you felt like it was important oh, to get people to understand that they're using touch more than a tool. Uh, they're using their hands more than a tool. Their hands I was more talking than, oh, about yeah. hands as a tool because I was trying to explain how important touch was for blind people and for deafblind people. And, and I had developed such respect for the students' hands that I could no longer control them. And so I was trying to figure out how to explain to someone who did the controlling of the hands, which I was taught when I was in school, you know, like this is how you get a blind child to do something. You know, you take their hand and you put it on the hand like the uh, mug. <laughs> yeah, feel that mug. Yeah, feel that mug. It's a beautiful beetle here, smug. Yeah, here. Touch that. Pick that up. Pick that up. And then, and then all of a sudden I realized that, oh, I get it. I mean, when we have vision, we use our hands mostly, most people use their hands mostly under the direction of their eyes. So it's like a tool that, I mean, that's my conceptualization of mm -hmm. it, but... Many people are so unaware of their hands that it's just they're always under the guidance of their sight. Sight first, then. Sight first, mm -hmm. and then so. But that's not what they need to be used for, for a person who's blind or deafblind mm -hmm. or vision impaired. You know, like they have to be eyes too, and they have to be. Ears. They have to hear sounds sometimes with their hands, and, and then they have to speak with their hands, maybe yeah. sign language, you know. Yeah. They have to, do, I mean, their hands... Emote, emote like you were saying their, earlier, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that makes me think of uh, a story of shared emotion with him that I think was a, a moment where I learned a lesson mm -hmm. from a student. And it, it was, he was supposed to go home. You know, he was at 
tech school for the blind, a residential school. So knowing when he goes home on the weekend was yeah. like the most important yeah. information. Yeah. You know, when am I going to go see mom again? And uh, occasionally the, it wasn't a regular schedule, you know, holidays would happen and the pattern would be broken. So it was always a topic of discussion. And so there was one week where we had told him all week he was going home. And then at the end of the week, I went to a training. I was out on that Friday and having told him he was going to go home all week on Friday. And then at the end of the day, he got to his dormitory and discovered that he wasn't going home. Yeah. And they, uh, oh, the dorm staff, oh, I know. <laughs> boy. I know. <laughs> Obviously, this was distressing to Jarvis. Yeah. And so his, his dorm staff was trying to help him and, and talk to him about it and explain what had happened and mm. to varying degrees of success, you know, they they weren't sure the language that he would understand in that context. Mm, and they said, right. we'll call Matt and, and see if he can has any ideas. Mm. And they called and I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm about to come back to the school, so let me come and, and say, uh, talk to him. And I remember approaching him thinking, I have no idea what I can say <laughs> to explain this. Yeah. And, uh, right, right. but when he, you know, I said hello and who I was and he just grabbed me and, and hugged me yeah. and cried. Yeah. And I just, I didn't, at that point, wasn't thinking about what I could do other than hug him. Yeah. And, and we were, I remember we kind of rocked together for a little bit yeah. and I thought, well, this is what I can do, right? I can uh, be with him in this yeah. feeling. Yeah. And then, at, at, you know, I don't know how long that lasted, but a little while. But I remember then uh, signing sorry mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. we were still in that embrace. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just, it felt nice. I remember it feeling nice. And, and Jarvis calmed down. And, and without yeah. a lot of other discussion, yeah. we, he just kind of proceeded through his weekend and all was okay. But I did notice that after that, any time there was an unexpected break or a mistake that someone had made in not being able to explain it to them, that they could sign sorry. Uh, and I felt like the concept was yeah, clear and yeah. therefore it, it, uh, he, he had the piece of information that he needed to, to like forgive me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great story. He was, he was a he was a great teacher. Yeah, wasn't Chris? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, big time, big time. Yeah, it um, it's the word at the very same time that he's feeling it. Oh, I heard you say that. Yeah, it, that Carol Crook had the. Um, had she was a teacher at Perkins and I admired her so much and she wrote in remarkable conversation she said the time to sign or say a word is the moment when you feel she might have said think but I guess I might say feel feel that the child has that word in their mind or in their heart I mean he, he was feeling that at the moment that maybe you know so strongly and yeah. somehow it was it's like a body memory of that time and then the safety and then the the word all at the same time you know so it's like all those emotions uh working with the kind of 
cognitive aspect, right? Yeah. Like together. Yeah. Which what I, I mean, for me also part of my um, journey in this field has been. Um, I mean, it's just been amazing over many years, and I have to say, I'm not a full-time teacher. I have never been, except for the early years, a full-time teacher, but I've had the opportunity to meet many, many deaf-blind children and adults and teachers. And, um, and one of the um, things that I've had to learn myself is that I have to be able to hold those feelings in myself in order to acknowledge them in other in others um, and um, and not get too overwhelmed by them so that's part of my retirement <laughs> <laughs> to continue on that journey because I think that applies to all of life in a way as we face an uncertain school year due to COVID-19, we know some remote learning will continue. We'll all be wondering how to build relationships from afar and continue our journeys with students when they can't be in the room with us. I hope we're all thinking about communication and connection while we plan our lessons. We must continue to give the right words when our students and children are feeling them, no matter where we are. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.